whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply. And from that day, no one dared ask him any more questions. Okay, second Bible reading is from Samuel, or 2 Samuel, chapter 7, 1 to 17. Okay. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in the palace of Cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. That night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelled in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people of Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from the following of the flock to be the ruler over my people, Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I'll make you uh, make a great name like the names of the greatest men on earth and I will provide a place for my people Israel and I will plant them so that they can have a home for their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did in the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed the leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you when your days are over, you will rest with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod of men, with a flogging afflicted by men, but my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Thanks very much, Dean. Thanks for being here this morning. Um, like Bob alluded to, we're in the middle of a 10-part series of a big overview of the Bible. And um, this morning, looking at uh, David specifically, but also through the whole bit, I don't know what the Bible is like for you. The passages we've looked at so far, um, God creating, the fall of humanity, and the promises to Abraham are relatively familiar. Um, maybe the, the middle of the Bible is a bit of a blur or a bit of a I'm not too sure exactly what goes on through that bit. So um, that's why this kind of series is really helpful to give us that big picture of what the Bible's about. But really, we've been tracing um, this bigger theme 
these bigger themes that come up through the Bible that really start to hit home for us. So let's pray that as we look into that this morning, that we'd, we'd get all those things happening, that we'd understand um, the big story, but also that we'd really understand what it has to say to us today. Loving Father, we give you great thanks that we can be here this morning, that you let us um, meet in such freedom and Lord, that we have um, each other to build each other up this morning. Lord, we thank you above that, that we have your word, that you have spoken. And Lord, that through your son, you have spoken words of, of forgiveness and of redemption. And Lord, too, you've spoken words that rebuild us as people, as individuals and as your people. And so, Lord, we ask that your words would do that more and more in our hearts today. And Lord, finally, we pray that these words, Lord, would, would encourage us and, and give us the boldness to take your word, your message, Lord, to people that don't have it yet. Lord, we trust these things to you in your spirit. Amen. We look for fulfillment in lots of different places. Looking for the thing or the things that'll give us that joy that we crave or, or that sense of happiness that we've experienced or maybe just that feeling of rest, of having some space. But we've also experienced that when it just doesn't come together for us in that way, well, we end up with huge holes in our life. And so I want to share some stories that kind of establish a pattern, a pattern that I reckon is true and a pattern that we're going to see um, in the big Bible story. The same month that we moved back to Evans Head, it was the start of 2016, I started rugby training back with the Killer Whales. And I don't know if I share too many um, rugby analogies in my talks, but you're going to have to suffer this one. Um, it was my seventh year of playing rugby and I was really looking forward to getting back to the Killer Whales because it's quite a, a good club, lots of families around. When I was at Armidale and I played rugby, I was playing with a lot of uni students who weren't really there to play rugby but more to just um, muck around with each other. But at Evans Head, I was really looking forward to coming back and we got stuck into training like several months before the season started and we were looking really, really, really fit. And you know what? When we started to play, we were putting teams to the sword. We actually went through the whole season completely undefeated. And I think it was the first time that the squad had ever achieved that. We were winning by some pretty big scores and we were improving with every single game. Hardly anyone was getting injured. And yeah, we made it to these semifinals completely undefeated. And so, of course, our hopes were pretty high. We were feeling pretty confident. Now, the first week of finals, we had to go to Byron Bay to play. And our whole game just fell apart. No one played as a team. No one did what we, what we needed to do. So we had to play another final to qualify for the grand final. And we bounced back and had a pretty convincing win. And we were there. And even in the grand final, we'd made it to half time with a pretty all right lead. We were dominating and were, looked like we had this grand final in the bag. We were feeling confident. But of course, you can tell where this story is going to end. 
we got annihilated in the second half. And I don't know exactly what it was. But all that hope of this whole season of work put into this and of proving week after and week that we were this dominant team, we finished that year the losers. And that disappointment wouldn't really compare to Luke. Is Luke snuck in the back or is he out the back with his boy Theo? Luke, in that same year, had come off an injury. And... In 2015, he'd injured himself and he worked really, really hard in that off-season to get himself fit. And he was looking pretty fit again. He was pretty much in his peak condition, the big Greek Adonis that he is. And that same year, before any of this good stuff happened up to the grand final where we all fell apart, before that season even started, Luke went down to play in a sevens tournament. There was his first um, mistake. But there, if you remember... He got smashed in his shoulder, several, like a big surgery, several months of rehab, and even now, Amy told me that he still goes, oh, it's sore pretty much most weeks. Life in this broken and fallen world actually follows this pattern. The things that we look for to, to find fulfilment in, personally, or just the things that look like they should work out in a particular way can so quickly be undermined. This is a very similar time of, of um, my life. So back a couple of years ago, nearly three years ago when we first moved back to Evans Head, we'd already decided to leave Armadale where we were living beforehand. And we decided to leave Armadale, but we'd actually decided to go to Bible college. We were moving to Sydney. It wasn't until Matt, who was here before me, decided that he was, it was time for him to move on that we had an, you know, an offer to move up here instead. And we, we initially weren't going to change our plans. We were initially, we decided to move and we weren't sure that it was the right thing for us to come back. But after a while, we gave it consideration and we we realised that um, it was actually God's good provision to us. Um, we just cha- had that big change in life where we, Sonny had been born, our first, our first little boy, and we're in a new season of life. And coming back to this community and having mum and dad, it kind of seemed clear to us that that was God's good provision of, of what was the right thing for us to do in this season of life. And so Tara looked to get a transfer in her job and in the department that she works for it's pretty much unheard of but she got one and a bunch of things like that really affirmed what was happening for us and in those first few months living here there was such a change of pace for us in our own family life and in my work life that we had a fair bit of capacity and it was at that same point that the girl that we used to foster, well, that we became aware of the need to give her a home. And it even became clear to us that that was part of the reason, I believe, that God had moved us here. Because we had the capacity to do that. See, Tara has a background in, in this kind of work. She'd worked in foster care system for the whole time that we'd been at Armadale. We had space, we had time, we had the finances to be able to invest into her. 
And so when she first came to live with us, we'd, we'd go along to the meetings that were there to support us. And it became apparent that we, were, we actually had a really unique experience of foster caring to start off with. For several months, longer than, than they say, we had this honeymoon period where quite family life was really a lot of joy and a lot of, um, a lot of happiness. And then, as some of you know, about 12 months ago, it really unraveled. It, it was completely undermined. The hope that we had of being a safe and supportive family for this girl to springboard her future, it was undone. And it was undone by some of the family that she'd been removed from actually undermining what we were doing and making contact with her. And it was completely heartbreaking. The joy and the promise and the love that we'd invested, it completely flipped to pain and confusion. There's this deep sense of loss. See, what we experience is what is true of life inside this broken world. Two weeks ago was when we looked at that. A world in which people have taken the crown off God and put it on themselves. Of living the way that God made us to live to living for what kind of we want and what we desire and what just feels right at the time for us. See, today we're talking about the fulfilment of the promises that we've heard made, but really, at the same time, we see that anywhere apart from Jesus, there will be things that undermine that. And we become painfully aware of the brokenness of this world. And yet, the joyful thing, the great news, the reason that there's hope is because we're only in the opening part of the Bible, aren't we? It's not the full story. And unlike us in this story that's ultimately God's story, well, God's not under the curse that we're under because of sin. He's not subjected to the same frustration that we're subjected to. And he's not unable to do anything about this situation that we find ourselves in. A world where the pattern is for the good things to be undermined, to fall apart. In fact, he's the God who created and created in order to bring blessing. As we learned in Genesis 12 last week, he's the God who promised to reintroduce the blessing. His promise to Abraham was that he would bless him. And it's kind of like if you look at those first 12 chapters of the Bible, once sin has happened, it's curse, it's downward spiral, and God steps in to Abraham's life and says, I will bless, I will bless, I will bless. This is the God that we know. The promise that God will recreate a people, a people who will live under his rule, under his care and protection. People who will live with his provision, reliant on him. And people who who have the privilege of being recreated to be like him. 
and people that get to share in bringing his blessing to the lives that they touch. That's the story that we're reading. That's the true story of God. So this morning, we're actually jumping a long way ahead to be talking about David. It's actually a fair few chapters in your, a fair few books in your Bible, isn't it? We're jumping to a time where it would seem in some sense these promises that were made back to Abraham have had some kind of fulfillment. In the life of David, the king of Israel, it would seem that God has established a people. They're a whole nation now. They've got their own plot of land. They've got a king ruling over them. And in fact, he's a godly king. They're living under God's rule and they're, they're being a blessing to the nations around him, around them. And yet, like that video pointed out for us, you see it in David's life that sin creeps in and undermines. However, remembering God's story, that this is God's story, what do we see in this passage? We're going to see today that God ultimately affirms his promises and he points to a real king that comes in the King Jesus. And so they're kind of three points that we're going to follow today. Like I said, David is jumping a long way into the Bible. And so before we do, I just want to trace the story a little bit. I'll flick back there. Genesis closes with Abraham. So Genesis, the first book of Bible, closes with Abraham having had 12 great grandsons. And through some struggle and turmoil, we see how God is bringing blessing to Abraham's family and, and to the surrounding nations, and particularly to Egypt where Abraham's descendants are now living. And right at the end of the Genesis, we get this, this verse that gives insight to what God has been doing. Joseph says of his experience of, of his years, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And what he's talking about is the way that God is bringing blessing to the other nations through what he's establishing in this family, in Abraham's descendants. And this blessing did go particularly to Egypt. See, this hope and promise that God is in control is what we're seeing here, that God is the one that's writing this master story. And so the book of Exodus, when you get to that, it bursts open with promise too. 400 years have actually passed between the end of Genesis and the start of the book of Exodus. And in there you learn that there's a great multitude of people that have descended from these 12 brothers. So much so that they're being called the 12 tribes after each brother. It's an echo of what was set at creation, of being fruitful and multiplying just as God promised to Abraham. And yet you don't have to get too far into the book of Exodus to realise that there's a big problem. See, they're in Egypt and that's not God's promised land. And in fact, they're in Egypt and what's the Pharaoh do? He enslaves them. It's dark. It's disorienting. It's dehumanising to be made slaves. And shame has come back on them. But then God rescues. Once again, God blesses his people, this time through the blood of the Passover lamb, 
another sacrifice, a rescue not just from death, but from the shame of being enslaved. And those who curse Abraham's descendants, do you remember that part of what God said? Those who bless you, I will bless, and those who curse you, I will curse. Well, the plagues come on Egypt, don't they? Cursed by God. It's as God promised Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And as we follow this living story, you kind of keep looking for moments where there's fulfillment, where you hear more echoes from the beginning. God's people are great in number. They're finally, God's people are experiencing His blessing and finally they're headed to the promised land. However, God's faithfulness to His promises still aren't overcoming that problem that originally undermined the whole thing. That problem of sin. I don't know how well you know the story of Exodus, but once they've gone through the water and they're on the other side and they're in the desert, it's not long before they start grumbling, complaining that they don't have food. They actually say, come on Moses, it would have been better if we just stayed slaves. At least we've got some meals over there. After God gives them the Ten Commandments, Moses brings them down. And what's he find them doing? Worshipping this golden calf, saying that this idol is what brought them out of Egypt. As they enter the promised land, in the same way that Eve reached out and took power, this, this man Achan goes and loots from the promised land that God has brought them to. It's that same pattern of sinfulness. His only excuse was that he saw it Desired, desired it, took it, and then he hid in his shame. And so getting toward David, God announces his solution. His solution being a king, but not the sort of king that, that Israel asked for. See, when they asked for a king, they said, we want to be like the other nations. And the foolishness is they already had a king. No other nation was led like God, led by God like Israel had been. In a pillar of fire or by the commandments on stone tablets. God actually there leading his people. And as they ask for a king, God does give them one, but he's going to be God's king. And that's who David is. A king that's different and that's because this nation is being set up to be different, to be that shining light in, in a world that's been spun into darkness, to lead Israel to be different to the other nations, to be a blessed nation that will bless other nations. This was God's rescuing king. If you think about David's life, he was the king who defeats the enemies of God's people, taking down Goliath. He was God's warrior king, David, he conquered the fortress of Jerusalem, setting up this capital, this capital that would serve to be a capital of peace. David's called in the Bible the king or a man after God's own heart. God's rejoicing, merciful, gracious and songwriting king. He's even God's dancing king. There's this episode, I don't know if you know it, in David's life and we're not going to act it out today, but he pretty much dances around in the nud, doesn't he? Enjoy over what's happening. The Ark of the Covenant, and this was a, a, a box that had the, 
stone tablets of the Ten Commandments in it. This, this kind of icon or this, this um, visual representation of God's presence and God's Word right with these people is discovered and it's brought back into the city and David's there dancing, leading this parade. It's got nothing on what's going to happen downtown this afternoon. Men and women, children everywhere. There's food to share, bread and cakes and, and raisins, I think it says in the Bible. And it's good you can get excited about raisins, but here's a man and look at what he, he's almost naked. He's relaxed, he's free, he's dancing. He's Adam and Eve in the garden with no shame. Nothing to hide before God. And he dances and brings God's word into the capital, eventually to be placed at the heart of the temple. And the temple itself was lined with these pictures of of trees and of birds and of plants and of bees and of life. And it's like a mini version of the garden all over again. It's there to represent God's presence, what God is doing. A man in all his glory rejoicing with others with no shame and so just for a very small moment in the big story of the Bible there's this glimpse a glimpse of this of a, some kind of fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham as Israel experiences this blessing under King David God's people living in God's place underneath God's ruling king And it's a beautiful picture, a glimpse of what might be upon us. And as the story slows down, we get to a really critical chapter, and that's the one that um, Dean read for us this morning. And we hear these words. After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, David said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. One thing left to do, says David, I'm going to build a house for God, a house where his word will be, where his spirit will be, where God will once again dwell and live with his people. It's like that picture of a new Eden. But then what's God say in response? This is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I haven't dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt. You, God says, are you going to build me a place? He reminds David, I took you from tending the flock and appointed you as ruler over my people. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I'll provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. And I will also give you rest from your enemy. God's people, a great name. God's place planted to grow in. God's rule, a good king. And what would the result be? It's promised rest. Rest in all its fullness. That idea at the end of 
Genesis chapter 1, that God rested. Shalom, peace, that everything is as it should be. It's the promise to Abraham from Genesis 12. It's blessing. And that's how we're meant to hear it, isn't it? That's how David understood it. It says, Be pleased to bless the house of your servant. For you, sovereign Lord, have spoken. And with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. Bring it on, says David. Blessed by God's good word, spoken, his trustworthy word, is what David says earlier. Blessed with a blessing. Blessing, breeding blessing. It's this forever blessing. It's the ultimate story of life finally coming to fulfillment. And we kind of got to slow down and think, is this the person that God promised to Eve? Is this the descendant of Eve who would stamp out evil? Is this the one that we've been waiting for? What could possibly undermine this? Well, of course, it's the root of the problem that has not been dealt with to this point. The problem of my heart and your heart. Problem of David's heart. The problem of sin. Yes, King David was named a man after God's own heart. And yet here, as the promises to Abraham come to this climax, there's darkness to all the brightness in David's story. Now you see it first in the passage that we had read. God says, but when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you and I will establish his kingdom. See, here's the twist. David's not the ultimate offspring, is he? He carries the promises, but he's not their climax. It's going to be a son of David. The passage says, He will be is the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And right here, we get in verse 14, we have a glimpse of this ultimate picture where God says, I will be his father and he will be my son. It reminds us of God's love for Adam before the fall. But also there's this other hint. I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. Like the hint from after the fall that, that kind of gives us this first ray of hope that God promised Eve, an offspring, who will crush the serpent, but in do so will be struck, will suffer. And not only does God's promise let us know that David will die, but when we see how David's life plays out, it's clear as day that he is not the promised one. He's not the Messiah. From taking the wife of Uriah, desiring her and inviting her in and committing adultery with her, to then trying to go to elaborate lengths to cover up his sin. So much so that he ends up having the husband of, Ur of, of, of um, Bathsheba, Uriah, sent to the front lines, pretty much murdered to cover up his sin. 
King David, the man after God's own heart. And pretty much that little action sets in train this ripple effect that just keeps going and going and going. And his sons just go from worse to worse to worse to worse. Pretty much if you read the Bible from here to the New Testament, like don't read it with your kids. There's incest, there's rape, there's murder. It just goes to horribly dark places. Do read the Bible to your kids. But the point is that that this problem of sin is so dark and undermines so much of our life that we need a far better king than David ever was. And so we get to the opening chapter of the New Testament. And the very first chapter in Matthew's Gospel tells us this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And right there we go, ah, promise made to Abraham, it's Jesus that fulfills it. Promise made to David, we're going to find the fulfillment here. Finally we're going to see some some fulfillment. And why are we going to find fulfillment? Because Jesus is the God-man, the one that does not sin. We're learning now the weight of this claim that Jesus the Messiah is this warrior king and a rescuing king. Not just carrying the promises of Abraham, he is the promised son of David, the promised offspring of Eve himself. And he will dance, he will dance on the head of the serpent, on, on evil, as he overcomes it and defeats it. It's actually a claim that comes on the lips of Jesus himself. As we hear his living story, Jesus speaks these words. From that time on, Jesus began to preach. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And Jesus goes on to tell his story as the fulfillment of the living story of the whole Bible. Jesus says things like this, don't think to come that I that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What's he say there? Well, the law, the law is the first five books of the Bible. But when you look at it, it's not really written as law. We don't need a lawyer to interpret it for us. It actually reads as a story. The term law doesn't really do it justice. See, it could be better translated as the instruction or the path or the path of which to follow. And not only the law, but all the prophets, Jesus said, all grounded in the story of the Bible, located in the history of this people, of God's people, Israel. Not just random prophetic dude and dudettes running around kind of making random predictions about the future. And then finally the Psalms. The songs a heap of them written by King David himself. You see, what Jesus is saying, the law, the prophets, the Psalms, the lots, they're all going somewhere. They're they're taking us on a path to follow. So let me just apply something now. If you have any kind of concept that the Old Testament part of your Bible is kind of like the not important bit because we've got the New Testament bit, there is a richness to understanding the New Testament that comes from making yourself familiar and understanding and reading the Old Testament. And if that's a tough thing for you to do, then get into that 
um, Bible, um, Bible. What's it, what's the app that we've been working from? Read Scripture app or find a Bible reading program. Find something that will help you to understand it. Not because you've got to pass a test on it at some point or that you need to know it, but that it opens up this richness of understanding as to who our Saviour Jesus is. But it's a path to follow, isn't it, that Jesus is pointing to? God's prophets to listen to, songs of David's to sing along the way, a living story that's waiting for fulfilment. And Jesus says, loud and clear, I am the fulfilment. I am the climaxes of the promises, the crescendo of of hope, the true story of God, the world and of us. And somewhat ironically, as Jesus hung on the cross, he hung under the sign, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And really, no one at that point understood the weight of that sign of what he was named on that cross as Jesus was tried and condemned he was crowned with thorns like the curse of Genesis 3 as Jesus hung on the cross he was exalted for all to see but not exalted on the throne exalted up in shame And as we connect the dots, understanding Jesus to be the true king is understanding Jesus to be the one who will rescue us from our own shame. The one sent by God to reverse the curse. The only one who is the fulfillment of the promise as he is God's faithful person. Giving his place in the kingdom for ours. And suffering the curse that we will know the blessing. Look to the crucifixion of Jesus. Look at the cross. Here is the place where the undermining of hope is undone and reversed and victory over it comes. Do you see that yet? That through his death and his resurrection from the dead, Jesus has lived through the longest Nights of our darkest, most horrifying stories of our own life. He's lived through our shame. And he's bore our shame. That we don't have to bear it anymore. That we can lift it off in receiving the gospel. And and be crowned as one of his children. Jesus reveals to us a God who knows all about what it is like to be shamed. Who knows all about horrendous family violence and of what it means to lose an only son. To bring forth new life amidst all the confusion and disorientation of death. Those stories that I shared at the beginning show the pattern of how different things can be undermined. But what I want us to take home is that sin is the great underminer. It's the thing that ultimately breaks our relationship with Creator. 
be it our own sin or the sin of others against us, our failure to live with God as God only ever has one outcome, and that is to pull us down. Yet God has promised to restore the blessing of knowing Him. And in the resurrection of Jesus, we know that He has fulfilled that. It was heartbreaking for us, like I said, when the foster care agency stepped in and had to move our foster daughter on. It was devastating and it's taken a long time to get over and I don't know that we're fully over it yet, but it didn't destroy us. Because by God's grace, we weren't looking for hope in that story. We weren't looking for, in fulfill, for fulfillment in it. And I don't know what it might be for you, apart from following Jesus, but we do have a tendency, don't we, to look for fulfillment in things that aren't going to fulfill us. And we have that tendency still to believe the lie that something that looks good and is there to grab is going to give us the fulfillment that we desire. We need to hear clearly as we understand God's word that hope is only ever found in God's story. And so especially if in your story hope has been undermined and unfulfilled through your own failure. Jesus says there is still hope. There is real sure hope. And if in your own story, hope has been undermined through sin against you, through someone else's failing, there is still hope. Because the centerpiece of God's story is the removal of shame, of forgiveness, of sin taken away. See, because of the cross, there is nothing so dark and shameful in your life that Jesus can't recreate into something that's beautiful. But you've got to trust him. Talk to him. Tell and laugh and cry with him and with each other. I'm not meaning in like some kind of open slather, but like we talked about last week, finding those safe people that, that know and love Jesus that will point us back to him. Talk to God. Because God in his goodness actually uses all the bits of our life to mould us and shape us. Not just the bright bits, not just the joyful parts of our life, but those darkest places in his goodness, like Joseph recognises in Genesis 50, 20, that they intended it for harm against me, but God purposed it for good. And it's actually those darkest bits that help us to recognise and see the bright bits to highlight the bright shades of joy that transform us to people that can dance unashamed renamed as God's adopted sons and daughters unashamed freed from those stories in our life that that keep us slaves and never alone but together forever 
and going to the home that God is making for us. Let's pray. Our loving Father, as, as we hear all that and as we piece it together in our minds and, Lord, we feel the weight of that. Lord, in your mercy and by your Spirit, give us the courage to overcome the fear that we experience. The fear of, of our own um, poor choices, of our own rebellious choices and the shame that comes through them. Lord, help us to hear loud and clearly that in Jesus you've sent to us a king whose, whose throne will endure forever. That you've sent to us a king who didn't consider equality with you something to be held on to, but Lord, who made himself a servant and gave his life. Lord, that we might receive his life as our own. Lord, give us the courage to not shy away from forgiveness. But Lord, give us confidence and faith and trust in you that even the darkest parts of our life, Lord, can be overcome through what you've done for us in Jesus Christ. Give us the faith to understand that. Give us the courage to act on that. And give us the will to, to remain in that. Lord, as different things cross our path that would, would um, excite us or tempt us or lure us away. Lord, create in us new hearts. Clean hearts. Lord, refine us all our days. In Jesus' name, amen.